And one of the great pleasures is uh, to introduce Anurima Bhargava, who also has been part of the Pluralism Project since early on as a student um, and uh, doing research on her native place in Chicago where she actually grew up in one of those big Hindu temples in Chicago and could tell us a lot about them. And also uh, a group uh, called, what's it called? Oh, Apnagar. Apnagar, Apnagar. So, uh, uh, you know, your house, uh, our house, that's uh, women's shelter. So, without further ado, a pleasure to have Anarima Bhargava here Thank introducing you. the panel. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take one, a little bit more time just to explain why I'm back here. Um, I, uh, I came back to Harvard uh, six months ago. Um, to be a fellow and um, and to uh, work with students on something that I've been a lawyer engaged in for a long time, which was to look at race and sexual assault on campus. And um, until February, I was at the Justice Department, where um, my I, I led a, a, the team that worked on civil rights enforcement in schools and universities, including for religious discrimination and harassment. So a lot of the kinds of campus issues that just came up and will come up now are ones that we worked on from a legal angle, but I will thankfully not have to talk about the law today. Um, so um, I, uh, I'm gonna do this quickly, which is uh, to do introductions and then I'm gonna turn it over and I have some questions already, um, partly coming out of uh, the lunchtime discussion and I'm sure you all do too. So um, the Reverend has, has kindly said to call him Greg, so I will do that. Um, and he is a Unitarian Universalist minister and the university chaplain at Tufts. Um, he has a very long bio here, and I don't know if there's anything you want to highlight from it, but what I will say is um, I think he, you know, he has spent a lot of time on exactly these kinds of issues on campuses, and so we're very excited to have him here, and he was the past president, I'm just going to put him on the spot, the past president of the National Association of College and University Chap Chaplains, so maybe answer some of the questions or talk to some of the questions that were just raised. Um, Janet, uh, to his left, um, is the founder of Youth Lead. Um, which is, um, in, in our world of acronyms, youth leaders engaged, uh, engaging across differences. Um, and she served as the ED there for uh, more than a decade. Um, and she is now a senior fellow at Circle, um, which is a center for interreligious and communal leadership education. Uh, and so um, I think she and, and Brendan can really speak to youth-led interfaith work um, and, uh, and we're excited to have both of them here to, to be able to do that. Brendan, um, so I'll just do this off the cuff because uh, we've already been talking about his bio. Um, he's the, uh, he is a senior consultant with the Interfaith Youth Corps in my hometown of Chicago. He is also a recovering lawyer um, and, um, and wanted me to make sure that I said, and he was, he was at the Pluralism Project as well, that, that he, his finest moment um, is that some of the students he's engaged in in interfaith work, taught him cricket, which um, is the last line of his bio. So obviously very important to him. Um, and then last, last but not least, uh, certainly Dr. Neelama Shukla-Bhatt is a program director and associate professor of South Asian studies at Wellesley here in the neighborhood. Um, and um, she is part of the teaching team for Harvard X's online course world religions through their scriptures. And so we have lots of folks from university context here. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Greg to start. Sure. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anarima, and um, many thanks to Diana and to everyone who's been connected with the Pluralism Project for all of these years. Um, I feel like um, the work of pluralism is just has this kind of connection with higher education that has already come up in so many different ways in the, our lunch conversation and um, actually beginning last night with the four uh, Harvard College undergraduates who spoke about pluralism and their connections with pluralism in different ways. Um, I feel like, as usual, the undergraduates have led us forward in just the right direction um, to thinking about uh, these issues, and uh, I really applaud their leadership. Um, I'll say just a bit about my journey in this work and then um, some of the things that we're doing at Tufts, um, which uh, is not really unique, but maybe could be seen as a case study of some of the great work that's also happening here at Harvard Divinity School with Carrie Maloney's work and at Harvard University with Lucy Forster Smith and um, work that I learned from Kristen Stone King at UC Davis um, years ago. Um, so, um, but just some of the things that are going on, some of the things that have come up already and then some, some additional thoughts that we might um, engage with. But, uh, my own journey with engaging with the Campus Crucible um, actually began when I was an undergraduate at Brown. Um, and it was around the time that Diana uh, writes about when she was starting to observe that the adult children of the new immigrants um, were taking her courses in Hinduism, not Euro-American students who were learning about Asian religions, not international students who were uh, you know, learning uh, a, you know, a, a US perspective on their uh, traditions, but actually you know, Hindus from New Jersey and um, Jains from LA, um, maybe taking the courses to learn about their own faiths. And um, I uh, had grown up, I was not part of that immigration, as you might guess, uh, with the name McGonagall. Uh, and coming from the Boston area, my family I was Roman Catholic, part of a different immigration, um, also one that was contested, of course, um, in its time. And, um, but what we started to notice at Brown was that not only in the classroom was there this diversity, but there was a diversity on campus. And so there started to be a Muslim Students Association and a Hindu Students Council and a Buddhist Sangha. Um, but um, all these discrete groups that were starting to exist, you know, many of them just you know, really beginning to form, but they weren't really in dialogue or in conversation with each other. Um, and so I have become close with our uh, university chaplain there at Brown, uh, Janet Cooper Nelson, who's also an HDS alum and a wonderful uh, leader in this work as well. Um, and we said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could bring uh, representatives of these different groups together to actually be in dialogue with one another, um, to learn about each other, um, and, to, uh, and to see what might happen. Uh, and so we began very modestly, you know, with a, with a retreat, and we formed something called the Brown Interfaith Council um, that I think has continued in different forms, actually, um, till now. Uh, for me, the work was not only the personal work that happened. Um, I had become a Unitarian Universalist, uh, in part because of my own interest in um, different uh, ways of spiritual thinking, uh, different uh, philosophies and traditions. Um, some people say to go from Catholic to Unitarian Universalist seems like a big, uh, a big shift, but in fact, both um, terms mean universal, right? Um, and uh, there's a kind of a universalism to both, I think. Um, and so, um, but it was also an academic interest, reading Diana's work and uh, talking with students in the religion department who noticed that the way we were studying religion um, was actually, in the courses that were being offered uh, at that time, were mostly all historical, uh, which meant they stopped sometime before uh, the modern period, most of them. Um, they, they looked at religion really um, as something that was almost foreign, uh, to the local area, and they often didn't look at the lived practice um, and the messiness of the beliefs of uh, people actually on the ground. And a number of us were, you know, kind of frustrated by this. 
Uh, we appreciated the courses in you know, the history of uh, Indian religions, for instance, or history of Christianity, uh, but also wanted to engage with you know, what, what do people actually um, believe in Rhode Island, you know, where we were, um, and how are these different traditions engaging with each other there. So we started a group independent study project um, called World Religions in Rhode Island, and that led to the work that I ended up doing with Omar Haq, um, who was another Brown colleague, um, through the Pluralism Project um, on world religions in uh, Rhode Island. This was all before September 11, 2001, um, which actually happened on my first week uh, here at Harvard Divinity School uh, when I started graduate school. It might even have been the first day. It was very early um, on when that happened. And uh, obviously a tragedy that affected people of all religions and none um, immediately and its, and its aftermath. Um, but I think not also a tragedy without some positive responses um, in terms of the kind of interfaith coalition building that began to happen, I think, with a renewed energy after um, September 11, 2001. Um, unfortunately, you know, many turned to fear and violence and militarism, but I think um, we could also look at the ways in which um, you know, others have been uh, really learning that we don't know enough about each other and that we need to build, um, build the interfaith community. Um, and so uh, it was at sort of at that point that I sort of committed to interfaith work as a career and um, that I would you know, try to continue the work that Janet um, at Brown and others uh, were doing about transforming um, religious life in higher education to, to match the new pluralistic um, reality that we have. Um, it's also, I should say, and you know, many people say that as a Unitarian Universalist, this must be you know, especially natural work to do um, because there's an appreciation for different traditions right within the Unitarian Universalist faith, uh, which is true, although I al always respond that we have our own biases and blind spots as well in our tradition, in our own history. Um, but it's also my identity as a queer person, I would say, um, that has really um, called me and motivated me uh, interfa into interfaith work in a really serious way. Uh, the ways in which my own sort of experiences of marginalization and oppression and silencing of my own uh, history actually has, I think, created a sensitivity to uh, the experiences of other people who may feel that around their uh, religious traditions. And so I really appreciated the conversation about Orlando earlier. Um, and we may come back to that. Um, so, you know, in my work, I've, uh, I've been at a number of different kinds of higher education institutions. Uh, my first uh, opportunity was at a large public uh, university at UC Davis, then I was at Oberlin College, a uh, small liberal arts school, and now I'm at Tufts, a medium-sized uh, private research uh, university. And, um, you know, one thing I think to flag in this conversation maybe is that sometimes we think about, uh, you know, people talk about the campus or college as though it were one thing. Um, but I think actually there's a great variety of experiences that go under the, the name of college in the United States, and I think that's something to think about, even as we think of, uh, you know, what are the goals of, um, of institutions. Um, you know, uh, the dean of Harvard College spoke about the mission of Harvard earlier today, but I think the mission of higher education is very much in question right now, and I think, uh, many, I think for many of us probably connected with the Pluralism Project, uh, we see a naturalness uh, between this work and the work of what, um, a college or university should be doing. Uh, but I don't think that that is necessarily a given for many, many people uh, about the purpose of higher ed. And so I think that's something that, um, as we look at big questions, one thing for us to maybe to keep in mind. Um, another would be a question that sort of came up in Hala's remarks last night, um, but are we perhaps entering into a post-secular age uh, in terms of higher education? Um, the Jacobsons, Doug and Rhonda Jacobson, talk uh, about this in their, uh, their work, No Longer Invisible, which is sort of posit the history of American higher ed as having a you know, kind of colonial and Protestant founding, uh, then a period of secularization during the Industrial Revolution, um, and then uh, potentially in this time, 
because of the rise of multiculturalism, postmodernism, uh, global communication, uh, the kinds of diversity that we have. Um, you know, secularism was, I think, uh, invented and promoted in higher education to make higher ed more accessible to uh, those who were different at the time, the Catholics you know, and the Jews mostly. Um, but now, is secularism actually a kind of hegemonic narrative that is preventing uh, people from really bringing their full selves into conversation and really addressing some of the um, serious issues that we face both personally um, and as a society? Um, it's a difficult question, I think, too, because I think for many, especially atheists and humanists, the secularism of higher education has been a breath of fresh air, uh, sometimes in a culture and in a society that can feel oppressively religious um, in many ways. And so, um, so what to do about that? As you know, I think as this conversation has come up, I've noticed with my kind of pastoral hat on um, some anxiety about um, what would it mean to really to shift that. You know, we're comfortable. Some people are comfortable with the secular paradigm uh, that we have now. So what what would it mean to really change that? Um, so a crucible is a place where things change. And you know, what has been changing over the past 25 years? Um, obviously, the number of communities and gatherings of different faith traditions and non-religious traditions um, has been growing on college campuses. Staffing has changed. Um, just in my three years at Tufts, we have um, added a humanist chaplain position. I think the first, we, we believe, the first university-employed humanist chaplain uh, in the country. Harvard has, a, uh, has an off-campus humanist chaplaincy. Yale does as well, a few other schools. But uh, Tufts really felt that um, our model of religious life is actually to uh, employ our uh, religious life colleagues as full staff of the university, fully integrated into our, into our mission. Um, and uh, our humanist community, which has been sizable for a long time and worked you know, some with the humanist hub at Harvard, uh, really felt that uh, they needed to have the support of a, of a chaplain. Um, and so we've added a humanist position, we've added a Buddhist position, a Buddhist slash mindfulness position, uh, which is interesting to think about and talk about as well. Um, having a huge response uh, this year, more and more students, I think, with the mental health issues, which are uh, so prominent in higher education too, um, really seeking out those resources. We're adding, hopefully, an Africana Christian position this year, and, um, and we don't yet have a Hindu chaplain, but it's definitely a, uh, on, on our list of unfinished business, I think. Um, spaces have changed. Uh, that has been mentioned before. We added, uh, you know, we have a historic chapel, a Jewish Life Center, we have a beautiful interfaith center. Last year, we added a masala. Um, when the Interfaith Center was built, it was built in part to accommodate Jummah prayers on Friday. Um, but it's clear in this particular time that we really need a designated space for a Muslim community. It's, it's functioning almost, our Muslim chaplain says, as a home. Um, because um, there's just not that, not that Tufts itself is so Islamophobic, although it's part of a larger culture. Um, but, um, but Muslim students are really feeling the need for that space, safe space, which also they have said is open to anyone who wants to meditate and pray. So, um, so it's, it's designated but um, available to others. And then just thinking more broadly about broader initiatives, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk more about this, but we haven't talked too much about the nuns and the non-religious, uh, the spiritual but not religious, but how might chaplaincy change to accommodate their needs? I know that some schools, like Hampshire College, Liza Neal, who's a great colleague there, uh, has actually moved to a model where um, uh, I, I believe their programs, while their chaplains do represent certain traditions, they also have another portfolio that might be the chaplain for um, intercultural community or contemplative life or identity and praxis. So actually moving beyond the religious traditions as labels for the work that they do. Um, Varun Soni, who's a Tufts alum, um, is actually uh, has this role at, uh, of university chaplain at USC, uh, has initiatives around um, chaplaincy and sexuality, the arts, uh, sports, the soul of medicine, the spirit of law, 
Um, and not to leave out Divinity School, he has something called the urge to clerge, uh, <laughs> which, um, you know, so covering all the bases there, but really thinking what are the initiatives that address the questions um, that are on students' minds today. So I think I will leave it at that for now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for this uh, opportunity. I'm going to turn on my phone timer here so, so I stay true to my ability to stay on time. So <laughs> I'll give Ellie a break. So Diana asked me to share um, what I've learned from working with high school and college students about both the opportunities and challenges of the practice of pluralism. So based on a series of in-depth interviews I've done over the last year in preparation for writing Say Yes, a nuts and bolts guide to youth-led interfaith encounter. Um, and the youth-led piece is really critical. Um, and that's been funded in part by Circles, my gracious um, thanks to that. I heard a lot of things, but there were three things that consistently came together from almost every young person that I spoke with. And those three things were the importance of cultivating a set of personal attributes, especially curiosity, and courage. The second thing was having a discrete set of skills that enabled them as young people to create a safe place. And I'll talk more about what do I mean by a safe space. And the third thing was a process because it's um, to be able to self-reflect and to also be able to accept and uh, give and receive feedback. So those three things, the personal attributes, the skills, and the process, I want to lift up through the stories of young people that I spoke with over the last year. So personal attributes. A young man um, who was probably 16 at the time, I asked him and his colleagues in high school, what were the greatest barriers to pluralism in the community? And they came back to me and they said, we think there's a lot of fear and mistrust between Orthodox Jews and observant Muslims. So me, the queen of, of youth-led work, said, oh no, that's too hard. Uh, you can't really try, tr why don't you try something easier? And they, to their credit, said to me, you've taught us to be courageous. Um, we think this is an important issue. Of course, I, I agreed with them, and they sat down and developed a work plan with my support, went to the local imam and one of the Orthodox rabbis who had the same response I did. But at the end of the evening that was run at this young man's house, he overheard uh, two people talking saying, you know, we have more in common with each other than we do with our less religious brethren. So courage. The young men, the, the, the students, the high school students had the courage to tell the adults and also respected clergy that we need to have this conversation and you need to support us. I think it's pretty remarkable. Um, Fast forward a couple of years, he's now a student at university, really engaged in interfaith work, loving the word pluralism. And um, he runs, for the first time, he encounters evangelicals. And they're like, no, we're not gonna engage. We don't, we don't agree with this. And rather, he could have turned around and said, well, they don't, wanna, they don't wanna engage with me, I don't wanna engage with them. But instead, what he did was, he said, hmm, tell me about this, what does this mean to you? And engaged in a series of conversations. And at the end of the day, they wound up having some really incredible interactions. He gave up the need to talk about pluralism because he felt like it was more important that they're at the table. 
Okay, fast forward seven years. He now has his master's degree and is employed by a firm who is defending um, clients at Guantanamo Bay. His client um, is, he said to me, was a proud member of Al-Qaeda and um, he was alleged by the federal government to have been involved in the coal and 9-11 bombings. And he said, it's, it took all of my courage and curiosity to be able to sit down with this man and listen to his story and hear what his experience was, because it was my job to help try to see if we could save him from the death penalty. So when I think about the arc of this one student as a 17 or 16-year-old having the courage to tell us that we needed to have certain conversations, Muslim-Jewish, which he was absolutely right. There was tremendous amounts of fear and misunderstanding in the community. Um, as a college student, really um, finding the curiosity to ask questions and engage a group that was normally not engaged. And then finally, um, to basically defend something that's just basic to our, demo our democracy as an adult, to take those two things together. So I think it's an example of how those personal attributes, how important it is to have them and to have them be supported. So a set of skills and creating safe space I talked to one young woman um, who said that at her university, she's a senior now, the desire for political correctness um, in the hopes of not offending anyone was very, very strong. And so what happened was, she said she'd hear her and her friends, they'd have one conversation in the public square, and then in their dorm room, they were having very diff different conversations. And I think, I wasn't there, but I think they were laughing about it, and one, one of the women apparently said, well, this is an SJW free space. Anybody know what an SJW free space is? Yeah, what? Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, oh, gee, I'm out of it. Social justice warrior free space. So there was this sense that people felt like they were going to get judged, and they didn't speak what they, what, they, what they were experiencing in public. Okay, her sister, who's on the other side of town, independently in an interview, she's at another campus, said that the way she described it was people were afraid that they were going to blow their social cred their social credit, mm -hmm. and that um, they were afraid, there were a lot of people who had questions about pronouns, um, and they were afraid to ask because they didn't want to be seen as a transphobe. And similarly around racism and, 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 and gay issues, nobody wants to be seen as homophobic or, or racist, and so conversations weren't happening. She's somebody who was very seriously involved in leading dialogue when she was in, in high school. So in college, the obvious thing to do was to create a series of dialogues, which she did on campus, but having the skills, and they're teachable skills, and I think when um, the, uh, Rakesh was talking earlier about needing a pedagogy, I think a pedagogy exists, we just need to get it out there. It's clear, you know, what kinds of communication skills do you need to be able to have, create a space where people feel like they're not going to be judged, and that it's possible to teach young people, as, as young as 15, to be able to facilitate and create a safe space, to not only set ground rules, but then know what to do when somebody, event, you, you know they're going to blow past them, because it happens every time. Maybe not even out of, of ill will, it just happens. People say things, it happens. So, um, and knowing that it's about how do you ask questions. If one of the most important things is, I think, how do you ask questions that seek to understand somebody when you know you're not going to agree? Because it's not about agreeing. Okay. So the third thing is engaging in self-reflection and, and giving and receiving feedback. And why is this so important? Um, because this is an art. Trying to have these conversations, inner identity conversations, is an art. It's different every time. Everybody brings their own story to the room. And it's really critical to be able to step back and say, 
wow, that really worked, that really didn't work at all. And I remember this summer I was talking to a young man who started a Unitarian Universalist club on his college campus, which he said nobody talked about religion on campus. And he said what gave him the courage was every, every twice a month, senior year in high school, he was facilitating meetings at Youth Lead. And um, some went really great, because they were hit or miss, and some of them just bombed. But after each one, the cohort of facilitators sat around and talked about what went well, what questions opened things up, what questions were a disaster, you know, what flow worked. And they got used to not only self-reflecting, this is what went well, this was, yeah, that really, why did I say that? Um, but also hearing it from their peers. So you're not afraid, it's not like I'm being judged, because this isn't, this isn't easy to do. I see Tamara's shaking her head back there. So yeah, so, um, and uh, the, I wanna give a quote from another man because I just, I just love this quote. He said, this, this was an interview this summer. He said, quote, I think the only thing that's more effective in building confidence than trying and succeeding is trying and failing. Then reflecting on it and being able to try something different the next time. And that um, having the ability to, and freedom to try and fail and then have to support to do it again is, is really amazing. So being comfortable being outside your comfort zone knowing that there are um, skills that young people can learn, but you need to create a space for them. And it needs to be, I think we would, you know, as a bunch of co talk about co-curricular, I would love to see a way to have these skills be incorporated. So in conclusion, you know, Diana, to circle back when you said, you know, what are the challenges and opportunities about the practice of pluralism with young people? I think what young people have taught me is that it is possible, it is really possible for young people to take the lead as they did as high school students. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's really helpful to have support to cultivate a, a set of personal attributes, especially curiosity and courage, because you need every bit of it. When you start really, when you peel away the layers of you like hummus, I like hummus, after you get past that, you kind of need, you kind of need, it's very helpful to have those attributes, as well as a set of skills so that people can feel safe to not be judged, so that aren't one conversation happening in the public square and in the dorm room, another set of conversations, um, as well as the ability to reflect. And I think those skills are imminently teachable and that my vision and my hope, which I doubt I'll see in my lifetime, but is my deepest desire that every young person across the country will have an opportunity to have the support to cultivate the attributes, to learn the skills, and then to practice them, because it really takes going over. This isn't like you learn it once and then you can do it in every situation. Every situation is different. And you need to be able to have the confidence and the internal sense of, if it screws up, oh, I'm a terrible person and walk away, I'm never gonna do this again. No, I'm gonna learn what I did wrong, you know, what, what went wrong and try to learn from it the next time. And I think that if we can do that, to have these inner identity um, conversations, that we can transform the uh, current fear-based narrative into um, a much more civil discourse. So thank you. Like Janet, I'm going to time myself so if you hear the tone, we'll all know that I need to stop. <laughs> um, I'm Brendan Randall, and I want to thank the Pluralism Project for the opportunity to be here. 
Um, I was a former SUNY research associate working for Ellie, and yes, I still know that I have work I have to get done. <laughs> um, it will get done. <laughs> Um, but I'm now with Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago. I'm what's called a senior consultant, which is a fancy way of saying minister without portfolio. It's nice because it does mean I get to kind of do what I want to do, which is a really cool job. And I get to talk to other people who are interested in these sorts of issues. Um, for those of you who don't know, Interfaith Youth Corps is a nonprofit based in Chicago, founded by Ibu Patel. It has a fairly simple vision. We want to make interfaith cooperation a social norm in a generation. Nothing tough, right? Yeah. So like Janet, I'm not sure I'll see it, but I would really like to see a little more of it before I pass on. Um, the way we try to achieve this is by partnering with higher education. And we chose higher education as a strategic lever of change. First of all, the environment. As Greg and others have commented, Colleges for many students, particularly those who come from what we at IFYC call majority worldviews, will be the most religiously diverse environment they've encountered in their lives. Not all of us grow up in Queens. A lot of people like me grew up in the Twin Cities, where diversity meant either Lutheran or Catholic, or as a lot of the Lutherans said, Christian or Catholic. <laughs> um, and so college was a real eye-opener. The first Muslim I met was my freshman roommate, Ahmed Mohammed Abu Zamzam, Jr. Um, and second thing is, colleges also have the history of being the place where the intellectual foundation for multicultural and diversity movements are founded. It gives them the rigor to legitimize them. So what you heard today with uh, Rabbi Yehuda speaking about how New York University actually has a minor in multi-religious leadership. They're one of over 20 colleges in the country that now have some form of minor that focuses on interreligious, multi-religious, interfaith cooperation as a leadership concept, not just as a historical study of different traditions. And lastly, we really look at colleges because um, that's where the emerging leaders are. That's where the best bang for our buck as an intervention, we believe, exists. If we can change college students, we have the best chance of changing the environment going forward. So I was originally going to talk um, a bit about of our work that we do. We do a, a variety of things, from consulting to colleges. Actually, Ibu was at um, Tufts last year and met with Greg. We also produce research. We're right in the middle of a four-year longitudinal study of interventions to promote a pluralistic attitude. It's involving 122 campuses and over 20,000 students. I was gonna give you some of the results of our initial time one survey. I decided, you know what, you can, if you're interested, let me know, we can geek out on the numbers. Um, what I'd actually rather talk about and what happened was last night was listening to the students. And what I found the four Harvard students saying were things that are resonating with what we are seeing on campuses. IFYC works closely with over 400 campuses. We visit anywhere from 20 to 40 campuses a year in person. And I wanted to highlight something that I heard from each student and how it reflects what we are seeing nationally on campuses. The first comes from McKinde, who was talking about his background. He identifies, for those of you who weren't there last night, as a Presbyterian Christian. And then off the hand, he notes, oh, and my brother is Muslim, and one of my ancestors is what, for lack of a better term, would be called a medicine man. Um, and 
McKinney represents what Peter Berger, a sociologist, says, modernity does not secularize, modernity pluralizes. In this era, for the students in our universities today, for them, religious identity is less of a given than perhaps in any other culture in human history. Does that mean they won't adopt the religion of their family or history? Not necessarily. But religion isn't just something assumed for those. Whether or not they choose to change their identity, they will be confronted with the choice to do so and be asked to justify, even if they don't, why they didn't. So McKinney's comment offhand represents the way in which the atmosphere he lives in is remarkably different than the atmosphere I lived in, and much less the atmosphere my parents lived in around religion. Another comment that jumped out for me was Hala, a student with the Muslim Student Association, who talked about how she and her peers are really thinking about ways to engage in social action on campus. And one thing that they are working on is currently the dining hall workers at Harvard are petitioning for better working conditions. And the students are attempting to support them in that effort. And I know this has a bit of the ring of the whole social justice agenda, but let's just bracket that for a moment. What that is the foundation of, or what it resonates with me, is what we're seeing in terms of pluralism around campuses in, in this country. And it's based a lot on directly on Diana's work, which is part of the reason I'm excited to be at IFYC, because I'm like, easy shift, don't have to learn a new frame. Um, but what we at IFYC see on campuses is pluralism is emerging in that students are respecting different religious and non-religious identities. They're developing relationships in which they can find inspiration in another person's identity other than their own. And they're looking for the nexuses where they can take common action for the common good. And the reason that is really critical is that builds the social capital needed to bridge the differences of diversity. As any of you familiar with um, Robert Putnam's work know that actually diversity left unattended reduces social capital. It's, it's like a garden. It will grow weeds. You need to tend to it and cultivate it. And so what I saw in Hala was that fact that students are doing this on this campus. A third student, Vimal, who was with the uh, <coughs> Hindu Student Association, made a really interesting offhand comment, too. He talked about how in talking to other students about his own identity as a Hindu, it forced him to return to some of the foundational texts for him and to refine his sense of his identity as a Hindu. That's a comment we hear routinely from students engaging in this work, is it helps them to define and have a stronger sense of their identity. And picking up on what Greg said is, we even hear it from students who identify as nuns. They're saying, I finally have an ability to describe what I believe in positive terms, not merely in negative terms, not I'm not that, but actually this is what I am. Whether it's spiritual, humanist, atheist, universalist, they're getting terminologies and labels to be able to positively describe because they're being caught in the conversation. And no one wants to be the one at the conversation who doesn't have an identity to offer. And then the last thing was Emma, who leads the interfaith, um, it used to be council, it's now Forum. Forum, thank you, at Harvard. She's the president there. She made a comment that I just love. She said, I want to feel comfortable being uncomfortable. 
which is also something we hear at campuses, and that the ultimate goal isn't just the commonalities, the easy lifts, the things we share. As Ibu likes to say, interfaith diversity isn't just the diversities we like, it's the diversities we don't like. Or as I like to say from Diana, pluralism involves the encounter of commitment. And that means that some of these commitments are going to be in conflict. And that true civic membership in a plural society means empowering students to know how to be comfortable when they are uncomfortable. Because if we simply bracket or ignore those differences, we're not addressing them. We're not moving forward. We're just, kick, to use a great political phrase, kicking the can down the road. So that's why when I saw these four students, I was like, wow, you are an amazing representation of what we see on campuses all across the country. <clears throat> and the last thing I'll just add, uh, since I do have 56 seconds, <laughs> is the cricket team at my school was formed in the wake of 9-11 by the Muslim students because we had six students whose parents worked in the tower that day and did not know if they were alive. And a rumor was started that the Muslim students, who were mostly international students, were celebrating the attacks. And so we used cricket as a way to start forming some interfaith bonds and start some conversations that we were able to begin with something we all enjoyed, hitting a ball at each other and running around. And that led to, okay, let's start talking about the conversations that are a little more uncomfortable. Um, and the team name was called the Silly Mid-Offs. Anyone here know cricket? Do you know that term? The silly mid-off is a position, and it's called, you're in the midfield, you're on the offside of the batter, and they're called silly because if the ball gets hit at you, you'll have no time to react and you'll be not silly. <laughs> so that was the name of the team. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Diana just stepped off, but I just want to start with uh, thanking Pluralism Project, my good friend Ellie, and everyone at Pluralism Project, but especially Diana, uh, almost 22 years <laughs> 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 22 years ago, my very first course at Harvard Divinity School was Diana's course, Diversity and Dialogue. And that's where my journey into pluralism also started. I uh, started working at Pluralism Project in 1994 and worked uh, for it until I graduated, uh, my, completed my doctoral degree here in 2003. And uh, I also used Diana's work and also Pluralism Project's work especially for a course that I taught last semester uh, called South Asian Models of Religious Pluralism. And that, that's where we also discuss, again discussed uh, Diana's work about and her underst the understanding she has given us about how pluralism is not just toler tolerance, not just inclusion, but an encounter of commitments, as you said earlier, uh, and an engagement with the difference in a constructive manner. So, with, uh, so I'm very grateful to you, Diana. And now I'll just talk about a little bit about my journey with 
students at Wellesley College, where I now teach. Uh, but I didn't start there as faculty. I started there as the first foundational advisor for the Hindu student body called Darshana. So it happened in 1999. Wellesley College is known for its multi-religious ethos and its work in this direction. But until 1999, they did not have a Hindu student organization. We were late into entering that. And I was the first advisor for the, that group. So when we first started in the first year, it was like honeymoon period. And so everybody was very, all the students were very happy to be included. So inclusion was the theme. And everybody was very happy to be included, to be represented at uh, this multi-faith uh, events that they had, especially at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year. So, but once that year passed, that's when something really important happened. The second year, as we met for the first or the second meeting of Darshana, some students started raising questions. It was about Hindu identity and Hindu identity in America. Because all the students I was dealing with were, came from different backgrounds within the Hindu tradition because they are, it is so diverse, but they had one thing in common, and that was they were all born and raised in America and did not have, did not come directly from India. So the Indian, I grew up in India, so I knew the model of pluralism that uh, prevails there, but uh, it was not applicable to these people. And they were also a minority. So oftentimes in the public perception of Hinduism, there are a few things that uh, need, uh, I mean, they, that drew my attention talking to the students that uh, it is like India, where it is in majority, the Hindu community is in majority, and therefore in a certain privileged position, that same perception of privilege is persistent even here. But this, where the students had a perception of themselves as minority, and so not in a privileged position. And also they had this perception of, uh, there is another perception, many of the uh, Hindu immigrants being professionals and therefore, being uh, perceived as privileged, that also was impacting some of the issues that they were dealing with. So they, uh, some of the students brought up this issue that, okay, we get invited to all these events and there we present dances and our uh, bhajans, which is songs, and uh, sometimes we also are taken to museums and all that, but it is like, it's ornamental. It's in a campus that is the, where the theme of social justice is the most important theme to be discussed on campus, we have nothing to contribute. On the contrary, because of the perception of the Hindu tradition as being so informed by the caste divisions, which 
most of the students I was dealing with didn't know anything about, but had perceived all this from what they were learning from their own uh, milieu. How we we are not we cannot participate. They said we cannot participate in this conversation. What do we do now? And so that's where my own thinking it it forced us to think about how do we participate in this multi-faith, multicultural ethos without looking defensive, but engaging with the difference, trying to because these students were rediscovering themselves. And I had to, my role was to help them do that in a multicultural ethos. And what emerged from those conversations, I think all of a what they did later on, how they shaped, it all came from them. I don't think I played much of a role there. It came, uh, I was just a catalyst. And uh, what they gradually decided was they learned that uh, pluralism is a work in progress. It's never a completed deed. You have to keep working on it. Every day, you will make mistakes, you'll come back, you'll correct them, you'll move on. And so, one of the things that they did, how do we inform or educate the larger Wellesley community, and therefore, I mean, I will evoke Peter Berger again, <laughs> who is one of my favorite sociologists also. He, he has said that the post-modern era is also post-secular era. And in this era, the work of pluralism is that of construction of an ethos that happens at individual level, community level, and also government level. So in this context, the government kind of infrastructure was provided by Wellesley College that was extremely supportive about creating spaces and giving us uh, opportunities to encounter different groups. But the work had to be done by students as individuals and uh, darshana as a community. So at individual level, as Peter Berger says, the, in this era, it's not because it is not taken for granted and you can choose what you want to do as individuals, individuals have to balance the secular and the religious in them at every given, in every given context. And so the students started seriously working on it and discussing it in Darshana. And the second thing as community they decided to do was to, uh, uh, Dean Khurana mentioned the element of continuum this morning. And what they decided to do, the students decided to do, was not to do anything specifically Hindu, but to invite other community members to spaces and events that could connect on a continuum at a human level with other. Uh, so they, in, they did what, for example, what they did was they would have a Diwali function, but not so much a puja, which is the ritual worship or anything like that, but rather uh, rangoli, which is making the designs, colorful designs on the floor with sand colors. So that was something that would attract a lot of people. And then that would provide the platform to talk 
about what it meant to them and what they were taught about Diwali too. So gradually this element of continuum and everyday experiences that would that anybody could relate to that provided the opportunities to uh, do this work. And the other things, for example, now they have something called spring mela. So spring mela is, mela is a Hindi word which means a fair and spring is the English word. So they combine that linguistically also. And uh, at spring mela they have like a henna uh, painting uh, done for all the students and anybody can come in. And uh, then they participate by that, they invite other people to participate in there and educate. And finally, there is something called uh, on Wellesley campus, which I think is very unique, is uh, called difficult dialogues. Mm -hmm. And those difficult dialogues are spaces where uh, groups or individuals who are having challenges or differences that they cannot easily reconcile are brought, uh, they are given space for discussion. And this difficult dialogue, it's not to resolve anything instantaneously because it does not. And uh, there are several sessions needed for them that, and those are the, and the students are able to participate in them without giving up their uh, individual identities or, so I have learned a lot from my students because they have given me models of what uh, informed citizens of a pluralistic society can be. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm sure there are a number of questions. I'm gonna, um, I have two, uh, and uh, I maybe just ask one and then and hand it over to the rest of the room. Um, so I wanted to pick up on a couple of different strands. Um, one of them is, is sort of how, like, the, the, the question you raised of how do we define sort of what campus is. And so I'm gonna ask a question about um, where you all think learning and engagement best occurs on a campus, and, and I use the word best knowing that it, this is gonna be a very gray area. Um, is, is it in the classroom? Is it out of the classroom? Is it out of the classroom within specific religious spaces, um, so defined? Um, and the reason I'm asking that question is, and, and forgive me, when, when Nilima raised, raised some of the questions of, of students um, in college, they're, they're very much the ones, the experience that I had. Um, and I think it, in, in in a lot of ways, Hindu myth, image, and pilgrimage created. That was a course. That was a course <laughs> that I was in, um, and um, with a lot of my peers, I was the president of the South Asian Association here. With a lot of my peers, um, and it was a space where I didn't have to worry so much about asking questions and feeling like I didn't know what I was talking about. Right. So so it was a place for learning and conversation. Um, in a classroom context that allowed a lot of the questions that might not have happened otherwise to occur. Um, and so I wanted, I wanted to ask each of you to reflect on, on sort of how, you know, what are the different roles um, of, of sort of the classroom experience itself and then out of classroom in, in the context of, of how we sort of have students not only learn about religious, um, their own religious backgrounds, but those of others. Can I, because I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just very briefly address this because I teach courses on religion in South Asia and right now I'm teaching Secret Arts of South Asia where I teach uh, a diversity of traditions uh, from South Asia. So I think you are right, absolutely, that out of the classroom spaces are very important, but classroom spaces are equally important because they allow the students to 
uh, ask questions that they may not be asked, able to ask outside of the classrooms because this, there is a, uh, the issue of intellectual freedom and uh, inquiry that uh, the students bring to the class and often in, uh, and that was one point I really wanted to make and was not able to, and that was that for this Hindu students who were dealing with the identity issues, it was important for them to hear about the uh, social structure of caste in class and then respond to it in an intellectual manner first before they could uh, go out and then uh, deal with it at a more community level. So absolutely, classroom it provides a very safe space in some ways uh, for students <laughs> to articulate what they might be feeling uh, critical about, about their own tradition. And let me just note, I, I recognize the tremendous amount of privilege of actually even having the classroom spaces. Mm -hmm. So so we start, I, I, I want to, Brendan, to maybe speak to the campuses that you go on where I know yeah. <laughs> probably most of them don't um, have those kind of same spaces. Well, it's interesting in that this is one of the areas where we actually have some data for the number crunchers <laughs> in the room. And I think the key thing I would say is it depends on the campus. Nationally, data indicates that in our first round of studies, the best predictor of whether a student has a pluralistic orientation, which we define in a certain way but is based on Diana's definition, the number one indicator, both positively and negatively, in terms of statistical significance, is unstructured experience with difference. In other words, did you have a good positive outcome in that experience despite the difference, or did it go poorly? Did it become a, we disagree, but I see your point conversation, or did it result in shouting and not listening? So in other words, we were really shocked. We expected the classroom to be more significant, but that's the national. Skip to a particular university that I spent a year consulting with last year that has a, um, it's a Presbyterian institution, but over 50% of their students identify as evangelical Christians. And the Presbyterians are of a different shade, of the same shade, sort of, if you were to talk about a continuum. Not a very diverse environment compared to a lot of campuses, certainly not representative of the national diversity. We found the opposite on that campus. The, the best predictor of a pluralistic attitude was a classroom experience with religious difference. In part because the students weren't going to have that same difference outside of the classroom. They needed proxy experiences that professors could give to them, whether it was simple discussion in class or a visit to a different religious tradition's house of worship. So I think the answer is you, you, you need to, there are, there are trends, but there are outliers. And you have to ask in this community for these students, what experience is going to get them to encounter difference in a positive way? And in some places, it'll be curricular, in other places, extra, and in a lot of places, both. One small thing I would add, too, is that I think that, uh, you know, I, I would say all of the above. Certainly, I think classroom experiences, also co-curricular and spiritual experiences. But I began to think even more about what are the common experiences that everyone has. So especially like orientation moments convocations. Uh, when Ibu came last year, it was part mm -hmm. of our common reading program. Um, so these are neither exactly um, 
you know, classroom spaces, nor are they, you know, purely kind of community social spaces, but they bring the two together. Um, and I think they are where the institution really communicates its values. Um, and I think, you know, that's the kind of contested space that I brought up before. And I think, um, you know, the more that, um, that you, know, cre you know, building leaders who have a kind of pluralistic orientation uh, is seen as part of an institution's mission, um, the more that really needs to be translated into concrete programs, activities, actions that are part of people's experience. Um, so, and that can have an intellectual component as well as kind of community component as well. Um, yeah. If I say something about that, I think that point of orientation and convocations and whatnot, one of the things that has interested me very much about uh, Dean Kurana in yeah. Harvard College that little spiel he did at the beginning of the mission of Harvard College is to create citizens and citizen leaders. And don't, don't, don't say it so fast. <laughs> he says that at the beginning of every meeting, whether he, it is a meeting of faculty deans like we had yesterday, whether it is a meeting he has with students, whether it is a formal occasion like a convocation, mm -hmm. um, this, and you know, I've never seen this quite before. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a, a kind of recitation of who we are mm -hmm. that he continues to sort of impress, realizing that there are a lot of people who haven't heard him say this before, as perhaps there were this morning. Mm -hmm. It's a very mm -hmm. interesting, what do we say, tactic, strategy, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, not to, I mean, from a, from a business school faculty member actually as well, you know, when some I think would say that, um, you know, some are uh, arguing that the purpose of higher education is, you know, purely for the job market or, you know, the, the rise of the STEM fields, you know, and so forth. But he's asserting something about who we are forming students um, and ourselves to be in this community. Right. And there were fans. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. And uh, when my daughter turned 11, went to middle school, I decided she, you know, with this background in the pluralism project that I had, she and all these kids need to learn about each other. So I started a, a youth interfaith group in the Presbyterian church that I go to, and we had uh, the Muslim community, the Buddhist community, the Hindu community, everybody was very engaged with this. It was a wonderful thing. Uh, but I noticed that most of the people coming to our events were parents, lots of interested parents, and middle schoolers that they had brought along. Very, very difficult to get high school kids to come because the parents at that point were kind of not dragging them along at that point. Um, and they're involved in a lot of different activities. And they're seeing this, I think, primarily as this is something that I have to do in order to be culturally educated or to be politically you know, conscious or, or whatever it is. It's not something I want to do, to go visit the mosque and you know, visit the Gurdwara and visit the temple. Um, how do you get high schoolers who otherwise have no interest in this engaged in this kind of thing? So I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. <laughs> 
because I get asked that all the time. And I think there's, there's two things. Um, one is that high school students, I mean, it's a generalization. People may or may not be interested in visiting religious institutions or hearing um, clergy speak. Um, but most high school students, I think, or many anyway, are on a journey of self-exploration. Who am I? What do I believe? What are my values? It's really maybe the first time they're questioning, well, this is what my faith tradition says, but I'm a little uncomfortable here. What do I believe? So I think if young people, and high school students in particular, can have a space where they can explore those questions, but the key piece is that I found was that youth-led. High school students don't need yet another place where people can tell them this is good for you, you should do this. And so um, they don't always plan programs and schedules that, I mean, once, Kids actually said to me, well, if you want to do that so much, do it yourself. In other words, they, they just weren't interested in what I was saying. However, they had lots of things. And, and some of the kids were, you know, kids that said, I'm an atheist, I have no faith at all, but they still had beliefs, and they were really grappling with them. So in my experience, if you can find a core group of kids who you know are sort of maybe more introspective or thinking about these issues, get them together and just ask some open-ended questions. What are you interested in? What, you know, what kinds of things um, you know, would you like to see? What kinds of things are you exploring? And if, again, in my vision, if they all have this, if they can learn the skills, they can actually facilitate the conversations themselves. Because we all know that most important conversations happen when people like me with gray hair aren't around, right? So I, I guess my answer to your question is to that, most young people, I think, or many, are interested in talking about their beliefs. They may just not be interested in doing some formal thing. And if you can find a way for them to even start in a small way to facilitate those conversations yourself, and when my resource is available, I'm happy to share it, because there's tools out there. Um, that's my response. Do you have that? Go ahead. And it, I'm watching our college, hopefully, move from kind of acting like an adolescent to maybe acting like an adult with respect to diversity. It has been in the sense that, for, I think, for decades, they've treated diversity as a requirement. Mm -hmm. And for them, it's both necessary and sufficient, basically, just to meet requirements, to be in compliance with diversity. Then they think they're acting good. And, I, and so they, they're, they're dragged into it because they haven't, they haven't gone through the sort of the process of reimagining themselves as a diverse and pluralistic institution. And so I, I wonder if the, the panel can address the challenges that institutions in homogenous settings, ethnically, racially, religiously, etc., um, uh, come about in, in, in reimagining themselves as pluralistic, despite the fact that they don't. I mean, I can talk about, we work with campuses that, for example, have faith requirements for admission for undergraduate. So religious diversity is minimal. Um, they often, though, will have other valences of diversity, and so they'll be doing some form of diversity programming. And what we have found most effective in those contexts is a lot of those campuses are in communities that are more religiously diverse than the campus body. And so developing a campus community partnership and using your community as that asset is really powerful. 
Um, that again, not every college that's homogenous will have that, but I think part of it is, is it's what is the college, it's not just the brick and mortar buildings and the students. And I think actually that a robust community relationship has a host of other benefits for the college, irrespective of this particular focus. But I, I, it may also be addressing the fact that universities and colleges themselves um, have a requirement to do some sort of diversity yes. training yeah. or something like this. And as everybody knows, it doesn't usually include anything about religion. No. So uh, you also work with university administrators, don't mm -hmm. you, Brendan? Yes, yeah, we work with the, what we call the entire campus house, from uh, student, staff, faculty, administrators, and alumni. Um, exactly, and that's one of our lines. And that was something said by, was it Hala last night who said, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, we need to see religion as part and parcel of multiculturalism on campuses. And the line I use is, um, if multiculturalism is a, is a, a vegetable soup, Diversity is the potato that isn't in there right now, and we need to add, or religious diversity is, is the missing potato. Um, and there are a lot of campuses, though, that are starting to get that. And the line we often use is, it's not about either or, it's the classic improv yes and. It's what are you already doing? It's not that hard to tweak it to add this as a part of the program. I would say the same thing in terms of the campus community partnership, definitely. Um, and then, you know, the only thing that I would add is that um, even if the labels are, you know, very similar across, you know, if every, you know, a vast majority are claiming a Protestant identity or a Lutheran identity, there's a worldview diversity within that, you know. So whenever we speak about religious, philosophical, spiritual, worldview, um, we're always using all those terms because, of course, within every tradition, there's going to be a huge gradation of identities. I just to tag on that, I love the phrase you use, Brandon, the um, proxy experiences that yeah. a professor can create. I think as a teacher in the classroom, I'm often thinking about how to create those proxy experiences. And what I Case think studies. I just want to add one more thing that uh, we are still working on it at Wellesley, but I think there should be some kind of communication between what we, we have uh, something called Office of Religious and Spiritual Life. That's one department. Then there is the multiculturalism uh, office that, that is another department, and then there is faculty, where there is a, all conversation is more or less, quote unquote, secular. So. If there is no conversation among these different bodies on the campus, then it becomes a burden of one group over the other. And that is something that we... Communication is amazing. I mean, like, they have large diversity training things for all the staff yeah. yes. uh, at Harvard University. And every once in a while, I'll stick my head into one of the big parlors where this is taking place <laughs> in my own office building. There 
is nothing about religion in that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, they they want to talk about maybe as, they'll go as far as a BGLT, and they're not so sure about the T part. Uh, so, <laughs> I I have to speak out and defend. Harvard on that for one moment, just jokingly. I, I was at one time in a previous life the director of diversity programming for the freshman dean's office at Harvard. And I want you to know, I did put religion in the list of diversities that we were supposed to discuss with freshmen. <laughs> I will say one thing in Diana's defense, though, is, is that anecdote is a really good example. It occurred because I was a student of Diana and also happened to be in this position. Had I not been a student of Diana's, that probably would not have registered on the well, radar. This year, you know, they sort of moved back from the diversity, you know, readings, I mean, in general, to, because I led one of these groups, yeah. to yeah. Plato and W.E.B. Du Bois. Those are good readings, no question. <laughs> Um, and, and very successful, but honestly. Mm. The, another thing. As, as, as the person who. <laughs> there, there are a couple of hands up. Diversity readings six years ago? Oh, Sorry to hear that. Do we have a time? It's, it's three. Time. Yeah. Oh, three. One, more one more question. Okay. Uh, both of you had your hand up. Go ahead. I, I don't want to be. Or we Go could ahead. do both. We could do both. Okay. We'll do them together. Yes. Yeah, please do. Before you answer, I'm going to take the other question. Oh, yeah. I can do both. I, why, don't, why don't you and I talk offline, because I think that characterization is 90% right, but the 10% I would disagree with is the critical 10%. Great. Okay. okay. And, and if I can just briefly ad address your question, I think that, um, again, it's the diversity by itself 
um, doesn't necessarily mean that in deep engagement is happening. So mm -hmm. I go back to my whole philosophy, which is if, if young people go abroad and they know how to ask questions, they have a skill set that they know how to communicate to learn, because you can go abroad and hang out with Americans and, and, and not learn anything. And so again, the question then is, um, you know, do people have a skill set and a sense of curiosity so that they really are engaging deeply with the other? And when you have that and you can facilitate those conversations, I think it's that much richer. Can I just say one thing real quick? Yeah. I will say, what IFRC would say, I think the way I tweak it is, students' sense of their identity is strengthened. For most students, that's a reaffirmation, but that's not universal. There are students who come out of the process with a new identity, but they feel stronger about whatever identity they now have, if that makes sense. Before I turn it to Diana, I just want to uh, say one Yes, One last thing, which is, um, I think I think the the conversation about how to bring religion into the conversation about multiculturalism, diversity. I would actually, uh, at a time when I think our campuses are being roiled by uh, differences of of race and sex, and you know which one of the letters of the acronym are we not gonna, not going to include? Um, there, I, I, I my other question was going to be really to think about the ways in which some of the work that all of you have done um, in terms of interfaith work. And, and, and work in creating sort of this positive space for students to bear witness to themselves, mm -hmm. how that can actually play out in some of these other contexts right now, um, where um, you know, the, the conversations about how to create safe spaces um, and, and dialogue are, are you know, killing campuses, for, for, for lack of a better way to describe it. Yeah, they're tough issues. And uh, actually, again, uh, Emma, who was with us last night, has the, mm -hmm. it, it leads the Interfaith Forum. They have their weekly, and it is weekly, Feasting on faith, and they establish a topic. And this week it might be BGLT, and what do you think uh, from your perspective, or something? You know, where you're not necessarily talking about my whole religion, but you know, people of different backgrounds talking about. It. They don't sort of articulate only the easy stuff. And I think, it, you know, that sort of space, if it could be amplified, so people felt this was really a great place to be able to talk. Um, That'd be great, but you know, there may be 20, 30, 40 students who participate in this, so uh, you know, it's a, this is a challenge. Um, thank you, Anna Rima and uh, Greg and John and Brenda and Rima.